Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you for your prayer. It's much needed. Uh, I was reading about uh, an arts and design person, and he was asked to uh, somehow or other make some sort of logo for a company that would really present their work. And after he did it, he presented it to the owner, and the owner said, well, that's a lot of money for something so simple. He said, well, you had to pay a lot of money because I had to decide how much to leave out. And the same when come to a passage like this, it is so, uh, so vast, and there's so many themes in it that it's difficult to decide just where to focus. I, I hope to extract some of the main principles. I think I might have mentioned the, one of the last occasions I preached here, the words of A.W. Tozer. And Tozer, Tozer said, the key to life is theological. The key to life is theological. And in plain speech, it means it should be a God-centered, God-oriented, and a God-glorifying experience. The key to life is theological. And it is in response to the revelation that God has made known of himself in the scripture. That is the key to life. And here we have uh, this wonderful passage. And if ever it was true of a passage of the scripture, it's clearly, clearly this is true for this particular portion of scripture. It, it's all about the Lord, as we shall see na- uh, later. If there isn't that sort of key to life in our experience, it's like a body without heart or without mind. Or we would say like a fish out of water. If this fundamental is absent or it is lacking in any sense, nothing can make up for the deficiency of having God as the key to our our lives. It is a deprivation indeed. Remember some time ago there was a film and it was entitled The Day the Earth caught fire. And catastrophes were taking place all over the planet. And finally they discovered what was the reason for it. What had happened, the earth had moved out of its orbit with the sun. And because of that, or in consequence of that, all these disasters had taken place. And when there's any life is out of the, our orbit with God himself, as he's not the key to our lives, then inevitably, as we find in this chapter, disasters and difficulties and dilemmas arise. The key to life is indeed theological. And this is true of humanity in general, and it's also true of those who claim to be believers in particular, especially God's chosen race here, the Jewish people, as we have in chapter 9. I remember some time ago there was a jigsaw produced by a company And the jigsaw was a picture of all the other countries of the world, all the nations of the world. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of pieces, and a lot of them were very similar. And lots of people struggled to try and put that jigsaw together. They really did struggle. Colors being similar and replicated here, there, and everywhere. But a few people managed to resolve the issue quite quickly, which perplexed other people. The person who had designed the jigsaw had been very clever. One side he had all these pieces, numerous pieces, thousands of pieces that had to be put into place and people of difficulty. But what had happened on the other side, there was just a picture of one person. And when you got that one person in place on the other side, then all the other side of the countries then fell into their own places. And the same with us. When we get God in his proper place, and our relationship with God in its proper place. Then you find so many other aspects that perplex us, 
So what are such a dilemma to us or a difficulty with us fall into place as well. The key to life is theological. And this is the message of this particular passage. It's the same as true of the prodigal son. Here's this young man. And he had many issues and many difficulties. He had wasted his substance in his life. He had used up all that had been given to him and finds himself in poverty. Not only poverty, but degradation and humiliation. But what was his big issue? His big issue was his wrong attitude with regards to his father. And also because he was away from his father and his father's household. That was the real problem for this young man. It's the same with us. If our attitude is wrong towards God, if our relationship is disparate or or apart from God, then we're going to find there are so many areas that arise for us that present difficulties and problems with us. The very reason we were created, the very reason God made us as we are, was in order that we would have a relationship with him. In Genesis 1 verse 26, we are told we are made in God's image and in God's likeness. Why is that stated? What's the reason for that? It's saying that there is a certain similarity between us and God, which gives us the ability and the capacity to communicate with God. That that resemblance made in God's image and God's likeness makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And if that relationship isn't there, or it isn't functioning, then the very purpose and reason for our existence is lacking and is problematical for us. Let me illustrate that. This screen is nearer to me than you are. But I have a closer relationship with you than I have with the screen. Not spatially, but in reality. Meaningfully, I'm closer to you. Why is that? There's a similarity between us, between us, that allows us to have a relationship that we can't have with an object or anything else that is closer to us. And because there is that similarity made in God's likeness, in God's image, having capacities similar to God, nothing like in degree and other other respects, those similarities mean that we can have a relationship with God. You see, the key to life Living, and God designed it in such a way is that we would have this relationship uh, uh, to us. We're made and designed to know God. And also the whole purpose of salvation and God's work of redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ is that we would have a relationship with God. The Lord Jesus speaks. He said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you had sent. That's the reason why Christ came into the world. That's the reason why he revealed God to us. That's the reason why he's redeemed us to God. That we might know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. There the believing means uh, to have a knowledge and understanding of God. It means a personal relationship a personal experience often with the Lord as he has made himself known to us. This is the way our Lord envisages it. But even this is the way in which it always has been. Centuries before our Lord Jesus Christ came, the the prophet uh, Jeremiah said this, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, 
and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they will return to me with all their hearts. You know what he's saying? I will give them, this is God's purpose, a heart to know me. A heart to know me. That I am the Lord, Jehovah, the self-existent one. The one who's the source and sustainer of everything that exists. The master, sovereign of the entire cosmos. That they will know me. What a thing we have here. And he said, they will be my people. I will be their God. Elohim, the supreme one. The supreme one will be our God. And he'll give us a heart to know him. That's always been God's purpose. That we would know him. And know him in a wonderful way. This is also emphasized in uh, other parts of Jeremiah. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, know him, because they will know me from the last to the greatest. This is not some second-hand experience. This is not some hand-me-down thing. This is some threadbare uh, relationship. This is verbal and notional. He said, they will know me. They will know me. I'll give them a heart to know me. And they will be my people. I will be their God. The same message. The key to life is theological. The prophet Isaiah wrote about the rule and reign of the Messiah. And he speaks of it in these terms. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The earth full of it. Here when Christ rules and reigns, Absolutely. One of the hallmarks, one of the signs, one of the the, the great indications with the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this summarizes and emphasizes that the key to life is theological. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I know you're going to be studying the book of Proverbs, but this is the wisdom of Solomon. The knowledge of the Holy One is is understanding. And so here it's quite clearly the creator intended the creators to have communion with him. The Lord of all intended we should listen to him and love him and to serve him. Isaiah puts it, the ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner, but my people do not understand. This is what he's saying. If we don't have this knowledge of God, this meaningful relationship with God. He says, there's the ox. And it knows its owner. It knows where to go. We're talking about Moldova. I remember preaching in Moldova. And it was in a, a village green. It was in the month of June. The sun was shining. An open air meeting. And I, I, I thought, who will come? But people from the village all come out. But not only did the village, villagers came, 3,000 geese came. And they were making all the noise while the service was going on. But I noticed at the end of the service, all the geese started to leave the green. And then so many would go into that through that gate, so many, and then through another gate. They knew their owner. They knew to whom they belonged. And he says, and the donkey also knows the manger, the place where it's fed, the place where they get sustenance, the place where they find sufficiency. They know it's and he said, if we don't know that, we're not only like beasts, we're less than, less than animals. They have an understanding. They know their owner. And here the knowledge of the Lord is 
being clearly seen as the very key to life. This is essential knowledge. And the Apostle Peter wrote these words, and he says he tells his readers about the power of God, through God's power everything is given to live the Christian life. And then he informs us about the MO, MO the upper, modus operandi, through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and grace. How do we discover this power? How do we experience this power? How shall we know this power? Don't we all long for a power we see, an essential weakness oftentimes in our experience? A lethargy which discourages us. A feeling of apathy that times overcomes us and almost brings us to despair. Where do we find the power? Through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and grace. Paul speaks similarly when praying about for growth and progress and fruitful spiritual living for the Christians in Colossians. And it's all about growing in grace and maturing. And he talks about growing in the knowledge of God. That's the essential part. That's the real essence. Here's the heart of the matter. Growing in the knowledge of God. The same things. Jeremiah sums it up. And he said, there's nothing comparable. Nothing that equals the knowledge of God. There's nothing that we can compare it. And, and this is how he puts it. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. No, the rich man is riches. There is, there's the philosophers. Let not the philosophers boast in the philosophy. And there's the people who have made it good in life or the rich man in his riches. Let him boast our glory about this, that he understands and knows me who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for on these I do delight. Is that the way we sense? Is that what we sense? Is it how we feel? That this is incomparable knowledge. This is knowledge beyond anything that this world can possibly conceive of. To know God. I remember a man in the church at Pelsall where I was the pastor, a very gifted engineer. In fact, he, he did parts for uh, uh, satellites and so forth. He, he's worked in Birmingham University. But in other ways, he was a very plain-speaking man and, and spoke very simply, even in his prayers. And I remember his praying one night, and he said, Oh, Lord, we know so little. And he paused. And he said, but we know so much. We know you. And he said, Lord, we have so little. What does the world think about us? Not much by way of status or kudos. Or other people think we're somebody. He said, we have so little. Oh, but we have so much. We have you. The key to life really is uh, theological. I wonder, is that the way we understand this knowledge? Is, is that our appreciation of it? Is that our longing for it? To know the one true God, the knowledge of whom is absolutely in, incomparable. I, I can think, you know, talking about Eastern Europe, and in the city of Belgrade, there's an organisation called the Bread of Life. Amazing thing that happened. During the Balkans War, hundreds of thousands of people descended into Belgrade. And there are three small evangelical churches. 
And they thought, what can we do? And they said, well, whatever we have in our pantry, let's come. These people have come with only the shirts in the back, the dresses they're wearing. They had nothing. They'd been stripped of everything. And they went to their pantries and they, and they brought out and, and the Lord supplied more and more until they were feeding 9,000 families a day. Can you imagine it? One of the leaders is Yasmina Toshitz, highly intelligent woman, very gifted, a person of great vision to see what God can do. And the last time I was with her, Yasmina's kidneys are failing. And she said to me, Bill, there's just one thing I want to know. I want to know my God better. I want to know him more. Now, it wasn't that her desire to service, for service had diminished. It wasn't her commitment to the local church had decreased. It wasn't that her, her longing for others to be saved had somehow or other taken a back seat. It wasn't any of those things. But those words, I want to know my God better. That's the thing I long more than anything else. And this, this is the message that's coming through. You find in Nehemiah chapter 9, God is revealing himself. He's speaking to these people and they're listening and they're learning and they're responding. They're getting to know the Lord better. I wonder what our priority is. I ask myself that. What's my preoccupation? What's the big thing that's motivating me? What's the big thing that's motivating you? I had one time to take a, a course in St. John's Ambulance uh, in the first aid because of certain situations. But I, I remember the first thing that was in it and what we were taught. It wasn't how to put a bandage on or that. It said, do first things first. That was the first thing. What is the big thing? Do that first. And that's what we have to say. What is the big thing? What's the first thing? That we'll know our God. The one who sent our Lord Jesus Christ and know him as well. At one time I was in the boys' brigade and the very first camp I went to it was in Scotland and there was a wall around the place where we were staying and, and boys will be boys and climbed the wall and I fell backwards. Onto my back. Well, you know when you fall onto something that knocks the wind out of you? Well, my friends thought I was dying because I was gasping for air. But uh, the person who was supposed to be the medical officer came with a bottle. And it turned out to be physical, a uh, fizzy pop. And I remember I was gasping for air. And he was trying to force this fizzy pop. <laughs> no doubt in my mouth. I didn't need fizzy pop. I needed oxygen. I needed air. <laughs> I know sometimes the danger is when what we really need is to know the Lord and we're going for the fizzy pop. That activity, that methodology, that technique, I'm not discounting those. I'm not in any way depreciating what they can do. But the greatest need for these people in Nehemiah chapter 9 was to know the Lord. To know the Lord. And that's always our greatest need. And many of the other things would fall into place. And many of the other things that we uh, apparently seem we lack, we wouldn't have that same feeling. Now when you come to our passage, we find that these people were serious about knowing the Lord. 
And there were three things or three attitudes that indicate to us they were serious. They were serious about it. It says on the 24th day of the same month, and that was just a couple of days after they already had a great convocation and a great company of people. Just two days and they're back at it again. They're in the presence of the Lord. They're gathering together. The Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Here's the first thing. Now, I'm not suggesting when we come to meet or when we come to seek the Lord, we should put on a sackcloth and we should put dust on our heads and so forth. But what I am saying, the same degree of seriousness, the same attitude when coming to seeking the Lord and to knowing the Lord better, should be true of us as it was true of them. They didn't just waltz up to the occasion. They didn't just sort of turn up any old heart. These people were preparing themselves. They were seeking to get themselves in the best possible frame of mind to seek and to know the Lord. Sometimes I hear people say, and perhaps I might have said to myself, I didn't get much out of that service. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe the thought comes back to us. What did we put into that service? How did we prepare ourselves for us? For us? You know, there is a principle of scripture. It was right back to when the Lord was giving his people his laws and all the various things to do with worship. And there was one stipulation and principle that was laid down for everybody. No one is to appear in my presence empty-handed. No one. Didn't matter who they are. No one. Everyone was to bring something. Because the Lord had enabled, had enabled them to bring something. When they were leaving Egypt, the Lord made sure the Egyptians gave them something. Yes, they were just recompensing for all the labor they had put in. But the Lord had given them that. So that when they appeared before him, they had something to bring. I wonder when we come to worship when we come to meet with the Lord, whether personally or collectively and corporately, are we bringing something? A prepared heart? A yearning soul? A thankful spirit? A longing to hear what God the Lord would say to us? I wonder, is that the way we've come today? Oh, if we're going to know God... We need our friends to follow the prescriptions that God has placed and the principles that he's given to us. No one is to appear before me. You remember David and after David had sinned and he comes back to the Lord and David wants to make an offering to the, the Lord. And the man who owns all that was necessary for David to do it said, Oh, you're the king. Take it gratis. You can have it. Gladly give it to you. And David's response, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I won't demean my God by giving something that doesn't mean much to me. I won't dishonor him. God honored that heart of David's. Just as these people prepared themselves to know the Lord, to meet with the Lord, So likewise, David did it. 
You know, that scene in the New Testament just prior to our Lord's Passion. And he's at Bethany. And along comes Martha and she breaks, or Miriam breaks the little alabaster box. And she pours out this this costly stuff, perfume, whatever it was, to anoint the Lord Jesus. It was very costly. It was something special. It was being kept for a unique occasion. And because of that, she felt this is a worthy thing to give to our God, to give to her Savior. And she did it against his burial. Do we come wanting, wanting by God's grace to bring something special? Something we save up just for him. Some devotion that we would not give to no one else. But he is worthy of it and so much more. That was their attitude. Secondly, the season uh, for seeking. Look in in verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord uh, for a quarter of the day. In their terms that was, what, three hours? Now in Moldova, the services can last two, three hours. And, and that's the way it is. I don't know how that would go down so well in Britain. I remember preaching in Romania and after two hours, the pastor whispered to me, he said, brother, I'm sorry we've only left you an hour to preach. Now most people would say that was a punishment. But you see the attitude, the, no, I'm not saying we should have three hours of, I, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that attitude to hear what God the Lord would say, to absorb what he's saying, to, to listen, to heed. That ought to be uh, true of us. And then the next thing, they separated from others. In verse 2, those of Israelites' descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, I'm not saying we should have some spiritual ethnic cleansing or anything like that. I'm not saying. But it's this idea. Whatever was necessary, they'd separate it from it. Separate it from it. They wanted space. They didn't want anything to distract. They wanted everything to be focused on that. It meant so much to them. Nothing as far as they were concerned, they would allow that to distract them or, or to divert them from what they're doing. Look at this attitude. This attitude. So often we, we think, uh, we, we, we'll just turn up and we're just present. And somehow or other, uh, it's up to others, as it were, uh, to k- take us along. You know, in the old days when people had pumps, and before the water would flow, they had to prime the pump the primates. Because of what we are in this era and because of where we are at our spiritual stage, one day in heaven it will flow spontaneously all the time. It will flow naturally. And it will come easily. But we're not there yet. And while we're in this stage and in this age and in these circumstances and in this condition... Maybe I speak for myself. Need to prime the pump. Prime the pump to separate from other things in order to prepare our hearts. These are the three attitudes. 
And then, secondly, there are two activities which ought to be true or should be true of those who would know the Lord. And the first thing is listening and learning. We've already made reference. Three hours they heard the word read. Now I believe within that, as it was in chapter 8, there was explanation and there was application. But the fact was they were willing. It was so important to hear what God the Lord would say. Hearing his God's rev- hearing God's revelation, that is always the mainstream. That, that, that's the fundamental thing. It's hearing what God says about himself. And what we have in the scriptures is God's unveiling himself, disclosing himself bit by bit. And we see it right through the history of Israel. There's two forms of theology, systematic theology, where different subjects are dealt with bit by bit. And then there's historical theology, where God is shown as he's revealing himself in situations, in the lives of his people, in the lives of the nation, and especially through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's historical theology. God disclosing himself. I think it was Francis Bacon said to a friend, speak that I might know you. In other words, it's only when you start to speak, when you start to verbalize your thoughts, I can fully understand you. How much more that is of the eternal God. He's speaking to us that we might know him. We're allowed to see into the mind of the eternal. We're permitted to see into the heart of our great creator and our mighty saviour. And his mercy towards us. Slow to anger. Full of compassion. Overflowing in mercy. And we need to hear that again and again. And these people were ready to do that. And then the next thing, not only is there this response to God's revelation, but there is, um, or this hearing of God's revelation, there's this response to God's revelation. And these twin aspects ought to be part of every believer's experience. Uh, Those who are serious about knowing God, those who want to build back better, as Nehemiah wanted. He knew the faults and the failings of the past. Even what is said here with regards to uh, the Levites and the scribes and what they were making, God's people had become stiff-necked, they'd stopped listening, they'd stopped hearing they started doing their own things in their own ways and it led to the problem. And there's only one solution, resolution to that. And that is hearing and heeding what the Lord would say. And of course, this is not optional. It's not optional if we want to know the Lord. There's no spiritual shortcut. There's no bypass operation. These are the two ways which are always, uh, and in every, every situation applicable to all of us, if we really want to know the Lord. There has to be regular, regular uh, application of, of this dual discipline of hearing and heeding, revealing and responding. And for Nehemiah and his contemporaries, this privilege and duty was non-negotiable. And this 
chapter just demonstrates the difference it made to their lives. If you listen to them, it brought a dynamic to them, which had previously and formerly been lacking. It engendered a devotion. Look at the words that are used. We'll consider these very briefly. And then it gave direction to the whole of their lives, all through hearing the word of the Lord. And what wonderful blessing brought into your, into their lives. Just listen to how they speak about God. We, we find them in verse 5. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Isn't that glorious? Wouldn't you wish to have been there and heard that and witnessed that congregation? As it proclaimed these wonderful things. Wouldn't that be, it'd be like heaven, wouldn't it? And this is what we have in this. And you notice how much is about God. You notice in these verses, look at how God is referred to. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and so forth. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. If you read through the chapter, you and yours is referred to something like 74 times. Our needs and our conditions, there's reference to it about 20 times. But it's all about God's. That was it that they needed to know. It's about the Lord. Here's the wonderful thing. You know, dear friends, when we have our response according to God's revelation, it will focus, it will concentrate on him. And, and you know what? That's not to say that we shouldn't ask. We need to ask. We're needy people. In fact, we're more needy than what we really truly know. But there comes a time when we put onto the back burner our needs and our requests. And the emphasis is on him. You, Lord, you made the heavens. Your name is exalted above all. Everything. That's who you are. That's what we need if we want to worship. We need to have that sense that awesome sense of the, of the Almighty. And that doesn't in any way detract from what we're doing. It enhances, as the hymn writer puts it. He said, Thou who art beyond the Father's mortal eye can scan, can it be that thou regardest songs of sinful man? Yes, we know that you will hear us. We just think, here I am. Here we are, a little creature, commune with the creator of the entire cosmos. Here we are, a little finite, infinitesimal person in the vast scheme of things. Finite, having fellowship with the infinite. What thought? 
Here we are, sinners, communicating with the High and Holy One, whose name is holy and who dwells in eternity. What a situation. What awe. What wonder. And so, dear friends, the the, the discipline of regular Bible reading uh, and teaching is the journey of discovery about the one whose being and blessing is exalted high above all, whose existence and excellence is beyond anything we can understand. It's totally immeasurable. And when we turn to the word and we listen, what wonderful things are revealed of him, his person, his power, his purposes, his precious promises, his provision for us. It's all there before us. That's why we need that discipline of reading his revelation. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You gave life to everything. The multitude of heaven worship, worship you. What we do as need in these days is that revelation that brings us to the point of adoration. And that can only come as we focus our minds on what God has said about himself. He who comes to God must believe that he is and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him or eagerly seek him. There's two things we have to be aware of. His existence. And if we're convinced of that. But not only his existence, his excellence. And are we convinced about that? Those who come to God must come in that spirit. My, my time is gone. But I would just like to pass on a few little comments. I hope you've somehow grasped us. I hope I've been able to convey that the key to life, every aspect of life, every form of service, Every difficulty or task we undertake is theological. And we need to set the Lord always before us. And he's at our right hand. We shall not be removed. We need to have that. So Thomas Brown, in the 1600s, hundreds, urged his people to say, he said, to think magnificently about God. Think magnificently about God. Martin Luther words to Erasmus your thoughts of God are too small too finite David Wells in his book God in the Wasteland written in the 1990s he believed that the problem in evangelical churches is not inadequate technique insufficient organization or antiquated music some of those may be true our sense of inadequacy or experience is ineffective and ineffectiveness can be traced to our understanding and experience of God. He said his truth is too distant, his grace is, seems too ordinary to us, his gospel is too easy, easy, his Christ is too common. In other words, we're not really, as it were, taking in the reality of these things. And they don't weigh heavily on our hearts and on our minds. We don't think frequently enough. I want to just close with a few little illustrations. In Psalm 39, it's a different context. But I think the principle is the same. And the psalmist said, As I meditated on these things, 
my heart burned, and then I spoke. Do you see the sequence? He said, as I mused on this subject, as I really delved into it, as this became part of me, my heart burned. As if that was the fuel for the fire. And then as the fire burned, he spoke. Sometimes we're trying to speak without the fuel. And we haven't got the fuel because we haven't mused on these things. This great and awesome one who inhabits eternity. Remember Mary and after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Mary almost alone. And we are told that Mary pondered these things. And it set them in our heart, as it were. And it's almost as if there's Mary and she has a cabinet. And that cabinet is her mind. You know, we have a glass case. And each event associated with the birth of Christ. She looked at it. She examined it. And then she carefully placed it in the cabinet. There it is. No wonder Mary wrote the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Dear friends, is that what we do with the things of God? We hold them up before our minds for appreciation. Just to absorb the wonders of them. And then we carefully place them there. They're there before us. They're with us. They've become part of us. And so we go forth. Oh, we've only scratched the surface. Three great themes are in this passage. The greatness of God. Just go through and mark the number of times great is mentioned. It will surprise you. The goodness of God is likewise mentioned again and again. Third, about God's goodness. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. He forgives us our failing. He restores us back into our relationship. He gives us a status which is unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. These things. And then there's the grace of God. How we become stiff-necked. We're like sheep going our own way. We've been rebellious. And yet he's not left us to our own devices. He brings us back. Just the glory of God, the majesty of God, all summed up in this. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. The key to life is theological. For coming to worship, our thoughts of God should be uppermost in our mind. If we're coming to pray, we should remember the power of God and the purpose of God. When we're facing perplexities, we remember the wisdom of God. It's past finding out. But in wisdom, he's planned for us. When we feel weak, remember the power of God. To make the weak strong so that we can live for his glorious grace.